Hey listeners, Harry here with another excellent episode of Air Power and International Security for you. Today we have a particularly distinguished guest, so much so that I'm probably going to struggle getting all of his accolades and achievements into this introduction, but I'll give it a go anyway. Air Marshal Greg Bagwell joined the RAF in 1981 and served the majority of his flying career on Tornado. Crucially for us, he was promoted to Air Vice Marshal in 2009 and appointed Air Officer Commanding Number 1 Group. This meant that in 2011, he served as the UK Air Component Commander during the initial phases of Operation Elemy in Libya. He was then subsequently appointed Chief of Staff Joint Warfare Development at PGHQ, and later became the first Director of Joint Warfare within the newly formed Joint Forces Command. After his promotion to Air Marshal in 2013, he became Deputy Commander Operations at Air Command making him the RAF's senior warfighter. So I feel incredibly lucky to be having this conversation with Greg, in which I'll be asking him all about the commander control arrangements in place during LME, the challenges facing commanders in combined joint environments, and of course, the significance of the air campaign during the Libyan intervention. So stay tuned, this is a superb episode. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always such a pleasure to hear about people's involvement in really significant historical events. Now, in 2011, you were deployed as the UK Air Component Commander for operations over Libya. Can you tell us a bit more about what this entailed? Yeah. Uh, hi, Harry. It's um, I guess I'm, I'm going a little bit back over history here, but let me just kind of set the scene because it, it's important um, to understand the context. So. The way that the Libya situation unfolded was, was pretty fast paced. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, and, and, it, and it was a little bit out of sight, out of mind for the UK. You know, a lot of people had taken their eye off Libya. We were busy elsewhere, had been very busy elsewhere. But, and so Libya wasn't something we watched, you know, uh, it wasn't very high up the intelligence watch list. So when things started to go wrong there, um, it was a bit of a surprise to everybody. And of course, no, nobody really understood all the details. The French very much became, if you like, the uh, in the vanguard of this, and and were pressing for action, and actually were working quite hard to convince the UK to be part of a sort of co-leadership of a coalition. That would have been quite demanding, not least of which co-commanding is always a challenge, but also, um, you know, the UK and France are still quite large military entities. But but to, to conduct an operation of that size and scale on a country the size of Libya, I think a lot of people forget how large Libya is. I mean, it's a very big country and quite a long way away. Um, the, the UK and France really weren't going to cut it. And, and effectively, America was almost kind of dragged in. If you, if you go back and read the politics of this, I, I think it was Obama at the time, you know, it was a very reluctant participant in this and was almost sort of suckered into it to, to a degree, if I use that word. There was a... Um, UN resolution that was made, so that gave legitimacy to the fact that we could act. It was it was actually quite a um, quite an open resolution. I mean, it, it, it used the language of any means necessary to protect civilians and civilian populated areas. That, that's about as 
that's about as hard-edged as it gets from the UN. It's not quite a license to do whatever you like, but it's not far off. So on the back of the UN resolution, on the back of France and the UK sort of talking about what needed to be done and the fact that America was, was definitely in that conversation. And so there was a lot of preparation going on of a, what I will call a coalition of the willing. It had a few other nations as well that were, were, were talking about being part of this. But it wasn't under any fundamental alliance relationship. So it very much was an ad hoc relationship. And in the days up to the start, there was a lot of conversations about who would lead it, where would they lead it from, who would be involved, etc. In the end, operations started on a Saturday. Uh, that was the 19th of March, I think. I think it was a Saturday. Uh, I was made the UK commander Thursday night. Um, I was away at dinner somewhere, so I had to race back to High Wycombe. And literally, within 48 hours, I'd gone from finding out I was going to be the UK commander of something to running operations on Saturday. Um, and those operations started with strikes, uh, airstrikes and some submarine tomahawk strikes. Um, we did not know on that Saturday what the command and control construct was. There was it wasn't agreed. Um, and because we could see what was coming, and actually there was a there was a summit in France where the French were talking about how to pull this all together. And actually, the French president stood up and announced that France was already doing strikes in uh, just south of Benghazi. So it, you know, and then there was a panic, quite frankly. You know, oh right, we're in a conflict. We've got a resolution. Let's start fighting alongside the French and doing what's right. Um, and let's let's come up with a command and control construct. Now, that sounds crazy, sounds unbelievable, um, but that's exactly how it happened. And I think the lesson for anybody listening to this is, um, you know, there's a, there's a perception in this world that all wars are very neatly thought through and, and everything is planned in advance. The command and control structures, beautiful wiring diagrams, everything's been prearranged. Uh, this was not that war. Um, this was very much a, almost a make it up as, as you go along. Now, the beauty of that for us is we all knew each other. All the commanders could pick up the phone to each other. We all knew how to do our operations as a team, no matter what that team looked like. And, and we picked up the baton running, quite frankly. Um, I sent my deputy down to Ramstein in Germany because I thought, because I knew, well, I knew America were going to be involved because B-2 started flying from America. That's how we knew. That's how we knew that America was actually going to do strikes too. So the French had started, America had started. And my judgment at the time was that Ramstein was probably going to be where it was all going to be coordinated. And if America is playing, if you will, then it was quite important to be close to them. So I sent my deputy down to Ramstein on the Saturday afternoon. Um, the French, I think, still harboured a hope that we were going to send our people to Lyon and we were going to run the air operations from Lyon from their actually very, very good uh, air operations centre. When the French found out that we were sending people to Ramstein, they sent their people to Ramstein. And I ended up at Ramstein on Sunday morning and that's how it started. And I became the UK air component commander in a coalition of the willing fighting from the 403rd Kaok in Ramstein. So, uh, yeah, we made it up as we went along. <laughs> That's an incredible story. I guess improvisation is always important in war, but I didn't realise command and control would be this ad hoc. But in terms of your job as air component commander, what did you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What does air command at this level look like? Yeah, when you're in a coalition of the willing, 
um, or, or any ad hoc coalition. If you like, there are no pre-arranged rules. It's not like NATO. NATO has a very, very clear structure of transfer of authority, command and control. It is absolutely written in stone almost, um, especially for an Article 5. This obviously wasn't an Article 5. And when NATO took over, they did have to, to a degree, create an ad hoc. Uh, system, but they have a, a very well-worn set of rules. We had a very well, uh, well-worn set of rules in the Gulf um, for operations over Iraq and, and operations under ISAF in Afghanistan. So those were all well known. You could step into a job, you knew instantly what your what your responsibilities were and what your chain of command was. As I, as I said earlier, we, we made this up as we went along, and this this was no different. So I ended up sitting at the table, if I call it that, where a US commander, Maggie Woodward it was, was effectively the, the Joint Force Air Component Commander. And I guess, you know, we literally all walked in and just tipped our hats her and said, you're in charge, we'll, we'll work to your plan. But at the same time, what you cannot afford to do and, and you won't be allowed to do is you can't afford to not be responsive to your own national government. You know, if your politicians, your, your government and your senior commanders have given you a set of rules of engagement, a targeting directive. You have to follow that by law, uh, rightly so. So there, there becomes moments of tension where the US commander is going to say, right, we're going to do X. You go back and quickly check the rule book that you've been given with the, with the Union Jack on the top and go, hmm, okay, I can't quite do that. But if I could do this and I do it in this way, I can do it. So you end up, if, if you like, you've almost become a mediator. And, and I think the challenge is that politicians back at home in the UK, for, for me, they were worried about what the Brits were doing, rightly so. I was worried about what the Brits were doing too, but I was also worried about what we were doing as a team because I couldn't operate in isolation. I needed gas from American aeroplanes or intelligent from French aeroplanes and vice versa. And, and we needed to decide who was going to operate where because we didn't just send aeroplanes into Libya and make it up there. There was actually a very, very well-constructed coordinated plan in the air it's as soon as you come back to the ground and start looking at command and control that it gets complicated. And, th- and that's where you earn your money. That- that's where all your experience, everything you've learned over 20, 30 years comes to play because it's about relationships. It's about understanding the mechanics. It's about understanding the politics and being as responsive, if not more responsive, to your UK command chain as you are to the command chain that's actually fighting the conflict. Um, and I spent most of my time on video conferences backwards and forwards to the UK or on telephone calls because initially it's quite hard to get a video conference because we didn't have the comms link but um it's um yeah it's it's very challenging trying to fight a tactical battle doing all the right things to the rules looking after people making sure we're prosecuting the air campaign and at the same time answering to UK political leadership and higher command back at PGHQ in Northwood. So I had multiple bosses and, and the trick is managing all of that. That sounds incredibly complex and difficult. And you've kind of hit the nail on the head there when it comes to the challenges of operating in a combined joint environment. Given the array of stakeholders that you've just described, how much of a say did the UK and the RAF have on the direction of this operation? Uh, let's uh, let's split that out. So how much say did the UK have? Um, the UK were a major partner in this. They were one of the original um, powerhouses, if you like, behind the UN resolution. Um, there was no doubt there was a very strong relationship at the senior level between France and the UK. 
I think there was, I think it was a more of a tension with America because I think America didn't really want to be seen to be leading another war in Europe, you know, or near Europe. You know, it, it, it had enough of those on its plate, and not all of them had gone well. Libya was sort of at the height of the Arab Spring. There was plenty of other tensions elsewhere. The, the idea that America wanted to lead another coalition of the willing, you know, probably wasn't high on Obama's list. Um, so they they were a sort of reluctant entrance, realizing that they sort of couldn't ignore it and, and had to be part of it. And of course, for America, the challenge for them, and we'll, we'll get to this later, I'm sure, is, is how to transition this across to NATO, which is their aim. And of course, you can't transition across to NATO without America being involved because they are the major NATO player. So I think the UK at the political level were very, very closely stitched into the thinking in, in both acting and in um, in how things progressed. If, if I'm going to be honest here, totally honest, I don't think it was ever really stated that this was about regime change. Um, and so the idea, what 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 will we try? What did we think the outcome was? What did France think the outcome was? And what did America think the outcome was? Now, whether politicians sat in a quiet room and said, "Okay, this is it for Gaddafi. Enough is enough. We're, we're going to we're going to see the back of him." I, I don't know if I, that never came through to us at the military level. It was never a stated aim to be regime change, but in fighting one side in support of another, it kind of becomes almost you know the outcome that you can't avoid. So I, I think it's fair to say, I don't think I will ever know, and maybe some of the politicians involved will ever admit as to how that conversation either developed or took place and to what extent France or the UK or the US held sway. What was very interesting is, is this coalition of winning grew. You had Italy, other, other European uh, nations participate very early on. Some were very slow to participate. Germany's a classic example. We can talk about that in the NATO transition. But we also had um, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, you know, countries that you wouldn't have expected to be part of an American coalition in, in what was effectively a European war, if I call it that. It wasn't, obviously. It was Africa. And with Libya, there's a, there's a strong Middle East linkage there. Um, so, yeah, and, and they all had slightly different views of the Libya that they would like to see or the people in Libya they would like to see. Um, Italy is a fascinating country because they have a very strong history around that part of the world and therefore would have had probably a different view. So, yeah, it's one of the challenges as a military person is how do I translate what actually is some quite diverse political views of the outcome versus how do I then achieve that militarily? So, yeah, I, I'm not sure we ever quite squared that off. We sort of drifted towards the answer by accident. You could argue that's why we, we saw the problems in Libya after the war and since, because nobody actually knows what the right answer needs to be. And, it, and even if it was the right answer, it's never going to be perfect. So that's the first challenge. Where does the UK fit in this? Where does the REF then fit within that in what its military task is? is, I guess, to be safe, you, you have to find your bubble. You, you, you have to know what your boundaries are, know what your permissions are, and, and therefore integrate your forces as best as you can to the overall plan without compromising the UK direction. And, and that's where it gets quite challenging, I'll be honest with you. Um, but there were times when, when situations were developing. I vividly remember this. Um, there was a situation, if, if, you, if you mentally picture Libya, you know, you've got to the west, you've got Tripoli, to the east, you've got Benghazi, and then you've got that long coastline with the big gulf there that sort of flows. Most of the war fighting was effectively west to east, 
along that coastal strip. There, there was a little bit inland, but but it was largely, if you, if you really want to simplify this war, that, that's what it was. Working out who was who was challenging. But what became quite clear within the first week is that uh, Misrata, which is a town not very far from Tripoli, i.e. mostly on the west side, was clearly a bit of a hotbed of where the rebels, if I call them the rebels, good Star Wars term, but there were certainly the rebels as Gaddafi viewed it, but they were the, they were the good guys as we saw it. They were the ones we were protecting. We're in the, the city of Misrata. And Misrata was under siege. And if you, if you go back and recall, there were some pretty horrific scenes of tanks driving into Misrata and just randomly shelling, you know, blocks of flats, etc. And I remember at the time, the Americans said, well, we can't go in here because it's, it's, it's urban. It's too difficult. We can't because there was no troops on the ground. In fact, they were explicitly denied a UN resolution. So this has all got to be done by air power. Uh, and they, they pretty much put a red ring around it and said, it, this is terrible, but we can't go in. And I said at the table, I remember it vividly, it's about four days in, I said, well, we've got some weapons, Paveway 4 and Brimstone, that we believe are not only low collateral, but we also believe we can use them in a tight urban environment. And almost by accident, we became the lead in, in the fight within Misrata, um, just because of the weapon types that we had and the skill sets we had. So what you, what you tend to do is you, you look to find... The, the niche roles or where you can add best value. And, and although it means sometimes you're not then doing other things. So I, I give you an example. My decision to, to, to focus in on Misrata meant that for a couple of days, we weren't actually um, as effective as we could have been if we were elsewhere, because there was a lot of troops in the open up towards Benghazi. The French and the Americans had largely taken care of that. And there was a little point, it was a bit like kids playing football. You know, I didn't need to go chase the football up there when I actually had a capability that would be far more useful and potentially more um, influential by going in and around the Misrata area. And I remember getting a little bit of a hard time from my UK bosses that we weren't seen to be dropping as many weapons and therefore we clearly couldn't be as effective as the French. Um which just wasn't true. And, and that was unhelpful. When, when your political masters are judging you on some, shall we say, dodgy criteria of just, you know, pounds of weapons dropped, that, that's not telling the whole story. And, and I was very lucky. Senior commanders I had above me back in the UK uh, effectively kept that away from me, largely. Um, and in the end, within two, three days, and we'd got Misrata sorted, you know, we were hitting um, Libyan troops on a, on a regular basis. And we suddenly became the centre of attention. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating mosaic, if you like, of how you can fit your skill sets Trying, trying to stay within your own guidelines, national guidelines, and still trying to meet your national ends whilst also playing a part in a, in a more tactical team. So it's a, it's a really quite um, challenging conundrum. Yeah, that definitely sounds quite tricky, especially when your political masters are judging success based on tonnage dropped. That's problematic to say the least. But anyway... You previously stated that the objective wasn't regime change. So what did you believe the objectives to be here? Well, the objective was quite simple. It, I mean, it, it was as stated in the UN resolution. You know, it was the protection of innocent civilians. So if Libyan forces, Gaddafi's forces, were shooting, firing, attacking villages, towns to the east, our job was quite simple. And, and, and because it said with any means necessary, that meant attacking them. Um, and so the destruction of those forces. Now, if, if Gaddafi had backed away, 
and gone, oh, I've made a mistake here. <laughs> I, 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 may have, I may have grabbed a tiger by the tail. Um, well, we, we would have stopped. I mean, you know, you, you, you don't just then, well, I'll, I'll blow you up anyway in case you do it tomorrow. You know, it, it's, it's quite clear in, in the rules of engagement and, and, and law of armed conflicts of what you can and can't do. But whilst he continued to attack, and he did across the entire um, of Libya, um, he continued to be a target on our list. Um, and, and the longer he decided to push on, the, the more, you know, effectively he, he made regime change the only outcome that was going to be liable. I jokingly said at the time, somebody said to me once, you know, was Gaddafi a, a target? And I said, well, he was a colonel. So I guess, I guess he was illegally a military target. But, but yeah, we, we didn't go out to change the regime. We didn't go out to target Gaddafi. Um, but, but we did go out to defend the innocent people being attacked by his forces. And because he didn't stop doing that, um, we, we kind of got to the outcome in the end. Indeed. Now, earlier you mentioned that it was a rather hastily put together affair. You found out on the Thursday and were in command on the Saturday. And we mustn't forget that UK forces, including the RAF, were already deployed in Afghanistan at the same time. So how well prepared was the Air Force to conduct operations at such short notice? So let me just step back one pace. And when I said we made it up as we went along, I was the nominated air commander for any eventuality. So if a pop-up operation occurred, I was the one to go. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't a total surprise that they asked me. I just wasn't expecting it on that Thursday. And I wasn't expecting it to be Libya because none of us saw it coming. But I was, I was prepared for something. Um, I'd worked with our UK JFAC team, who that was their raison d'etre, to sit there, be trained, ready to go and operate in something. Didn't know what, didn't know where, didn't know when. So, so we were trained. We, we knew what to do. We built relationships. We knew how to operate out of different places in different ways. So, so the generics were there. Um, the trick then was just adapting those in contact and, and making them work for the specific um, operation you then found yourself in. So that's the first thing. Our air crew uh, and ground crew, for that matter, had, had spent many years doing wars of expeditionary nature away from home in strange places, you know, were highly practiced in using weapons in very trying circumstances, you know, where you were literally in, in Afghanistan, for example, you know, looking to take out an individual with a brimstone you know, on a motorbike, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty demanding target set. Um, so we were ready for anything. We knew, how to, we knew how to employ our weapons. We knew how to do it from a deployed um, thing. And we knew how to do the command control. So the basics were all there. What we didn't know is the specifics of what was going to happen in Libya. And, and that was a challenge, if I'm honest. I mean, we didn't have, you know, the day-to-day -day satellite coverage that perhaps you might enjoy today. We didn't have any unmanned aerial vehicles until day 14 of the war. So if you'd have walked into our KOC on day one, you'd have been looking at blank walls. If you walk in a KOC that's established today, or even even that was established then in, in Al-Udid in the Middle East, there'd be wall-to-wall -wall imagery coming, being fed in from unmanned vehicles and various other reconnaissance assets. We had none of that. Sometimes you were getting as much off the TV as to where, where the fights were taking place as you might have been from your own intelligence, particularly in a country the size of Libya, and the fact that we'd had no time to pre-prepare. It wasn't like we'd, we'd done a long, long intelligence soak, as we call it, for weeks or months on end. It, this was very much you know, trying to understand it in contact. So that, that was a challenge, and therefore figuring out who was who in the zoo and, and, and where you could and couldn't go. Um, 
The, the really important thing to know about here, it, it, we haven't covered it yet, but it's it's probably what, something that people don't even appreciate, is almost from day one, America had a firm objective to get themselves out of being in charge of this. Um, they got dragged into it a little bit and, and they were ready to try and get out of it as fast as possible. Not to get out of it completely, but to certainly stop being, if you like, the leader of the coalition, the willing. I think it was about five days in. I think it was the 24th of March, but people can look it up. Um, so that's only, what, five days in. NATO was, um, I'll use the word coerced. It, it, there probably was a lot of coercion. Um, but NATO effectively signed up to taking on the operation. So the initial operation was called Odyssey Dawn. That's what the Americans called it, um, which is when I was the commander. And when NATO took it on, it became Unified Protector. So although we called it LME and actually use the same word for both, um, it's misleading. So within three weeks of this war started, we changed the entire command and control system. And I don't mean bits of it. I mean the entire command and control system. So I was sat in a KOC called the 403rd. It was an American KOC, very cold war, a big bunker, <laughs> pretty dank and smelly, but, but functional. Um, in Ramstein. That ran the air war for the first 20 days. And all the coalitions slowly arrived. And, you know, a Canadian would arrive, then a Dane would arrive, then a Guattari would arrive. And they and you'd literally um, nab an office block or, or, or a space to set up your own national infrastructure. And then you'd all coalesce and come together in that 403rd chaos. But it worked really well. It, it was a team. Um, we just settled straight into it. Maggie was great. Uh, and we just made it work. Everybody just brought what they brought, told the commander what they were can, could and couldn't do, and then it was just magically stitched together in the ATO, the Air Tasking Order. Um, so the principles were there, and, and the teamwork was there. On day, I'm going to say day 20, it was there or thereabouts, so my, the, my memory has faded. Um, we literally turned the switch off shut it down. They all went away. They all went on leave, disappeared, literally. And we handed off to the NATO command and control structure. Now, it's worth talking about that because that in itself was fascinating. So when this transition was looming, I got my deputy. I said, right, can you find the, the senior Brits in the NATO command structure? Because I, I need to talk to them about handing off, how this is going to work and how they're going to function. And at the time, there was talk about me moving across or some of my people moving across. Um, and, and if I'm honest, that, that was a national conversation. It wasn't one NATO really wanted to entertain. Because what you need to understand about NATO is NATO has standing command teams. Now, they haven't been used much over the years. In fact, this was, this was pretty much a first. And it was definitely a first for a non-Article 5 operation. And for the air components, they had chaos dotted around Europe. I think we had one in Spain, there was definitely one in Germany, one element in Italy, and there was another element in Turkey. And you've got to know with NATO that NATO NATO is a, a, a sort of coalition of consensus. And quite often, um, individual nations prize the fact that they hold a headquarters on their soil. And by some bizarre uh, compromise, um, the air, the Southern Air Command and Control System had two footprints. It had a senior command cell in Ishmir in Turkey, and it had a tactical air cell in Poggio and Attico in Italy. The senior 
commander of that. He, he, he'd been there for, for a year. So he was the standing commander. So it, the ball was going to be thrown to him. There was no debate. Bizarrely, um, with the Americans desperately trying to hand it off to NATO, was a senior American. So they're still handing it off to an American commander anyway. And he desperately tried to move his command team to Poggio because he wanted this to be run from a single point. The Turks weren't very happy with that. So they were trying to keep him an issue But eventually he moved and he moved into uh, Poggio. Um, when I got the, the answer back of who the senior Brit was, I was a bit shocked because the answer was not only were there no senior Brits in either of these organisations, there were no Brits. Zero Brits. Why were there zero Brits in the NATO command and control air structure in 20 to 2011? Because the UK had really paid lip service to NATO C2 in the previous years. We were busy. You know, we've been fighting in Iraq, fighting Afghanistan, and slowly but surely saw some of these outposts, if I use that word, as, as semi-irrelevant, and really backed away from some of those NATO um, formations. They were seen as a, you know, a hollow. I mean, Ishmael is beautiful, right on the Turkish coast. I mean, it's a beautiful place. And for many people, it was seen as a, you know, a, a lazy holiday, not a, not a proper command and control. And, and, and yet suddenly it now finds itself being handed the reins to run the, run the war in Libya. So that was the honest truth. We flicked off a switch in one place to flick on a switch in another where there were no Brits. So there was a panic in the UK as to how to parachute as many Brits as possible into as many jobs as possible, A, to get some influence, but also to be involved. Um, and so, yeah, that transition was fascinating. Now, I was a two-star commander. There were no UK commanders empty seats in these places. I, I would have turned up like a bad smell. Um, my bosses wanted me to turn up as a bad smell, and I ended up having a very frank conversation with the US commander who said, Greg, please, please don't come. It's, it's, it's going to put me in an extremely difficult position politically with the Italy, Turkey. So in the end, we compromised. We, we sent in a one star. It was actually a guy called Ed Stringer. Um, and he went in effectively as the UK representative. Um, but then once you do that, once you transition authority of your forces into NATO, you have lost control of them from a national point of view. Yeah, And, and I think the UK really struggled with that concept, if I'm honest. Surely it's incredibly problematic to shift from one command structure to another like that, especially during conflict, and even more so when the one replacing it is potentially split over two different sites. Did this transition hinder the effectiveness of the air campaign at all? And secondly, it seems crazy that Britain didn't have people embedded within the NATO operational command structure. I guess there's a lesson there for the UK about maintaining its engagement and involvement in NATO to make sure that it has a say in how its assets are used. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack here. Probably, probably haven't got enough time to go into the, all the detail. But let, let's let's do do some blunt and simple statements. Was it less effective as the transition took place? Yes, dramatically so, um, and for quite a while. I mean, it took a good month, I think, for NATO to really spin up and get as good as we had been. And that's not that's not saying we were great, you know, that they were worse than us. It's just you can't you can't just change that structure and expect, you know, things to just transition smoothly across. It worked. I mean, we worked together. The good news was we were all on the same side. So we, we, it wasn't like there was a conflict of who was taking over. Um and, and we're, we're all airmen at heart, and we know that to be safe and effective, there are rules that you need to follow and things that you need to do to make this work. 
So we had a couple of days. I remember being put in charge of the non-US element of the 403rd KOC to make sure that we'd thought through all the transition elements so that when NATO took over, we'd put everything in place. So the command and control that NATO had was in being. So when you look at a NATO structure in peacetime, it's got some permanent staff, skeleton staff, and then it's got some gapped posts. And the job of the nations then is to fill those gap posts. And because we only had like 10 days to warn them off, you know, it took a while to fill those posts. So, and of course, who are you going to get? And how are they going to suddenly spin themselves up? So, so that's why this took a, a time. Actually, there was a second problem. So not only did the US want to hand off to NATO, they actually didn't want to be providing the lion's share of the assets. You know, come on, this is a NATO task now. NATO, you've got to step up. Nations from from other from non-US nations within NATO need to now throw more, you know, uh, kit into the pot. I remember being asked by uh, he's a really good friend of mine uh, since um, I won't say his name, but he was one of the US senior commanders. He came alongside me one day and said, "So, Greg, how mu- how much extra stuff do you think NATO is going to put into the fight once they transition into the war?" My answer to him was a little bit shocking. I said, "I said you've already got it. They're not put. There's no plans to put more stuff in." So if you withdraw U.S. stuff, it's going to be a gap. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the U.S., I think, had to wean NATO off their efforts. And I think you, what you saw is a slow extraction of some of the U.S. equipment. But you still you saw a lot. I think it was the Kearsarge. It was the U.S. Marine Corps uh, flat top that was flying Harrier missions. That disappeared. Went, went home after two weeks. Um, so, so there was a lot of American kit, you know, tankers, I-Star, you name it transitioning out without a NATO backfill. And so not only was it a a challenge in transitioning to a whole new command and control structure, the force elements assigned to that new NATO force structure were not as strong or capable as they had been the week before. So it was a double whammy, if I'm honest. Um, And yeah, there's loads of lessons in there um, for NATO. but but look, it, this sounds like it was a complete mess. Uh, and, and at times it did feel a little bit sticky. We made it work. We made it work. And interestingly, had we solved the Gaddafi problem in a fortnight or a month, I actually wonder whether we'd created more chaos. And in fact, because the campaign in the end took about seven months from start to finish, there was enough time in that seven months to begin to think through the political outcomes who was going to be left in charge, who was going to run Libya post-Gaddafi. So actually, um, although it sounds terrible that air campaigns should be deliberately delayed, I think in the end, the seven-month window that we bought, accidentally probably, um, actually turned out to not be a bad thing because it gave time for all the other elements to be, I mean, you remember after in the second Gulf War, you know, things happened so fast, almost faster than we thought, and then and then uh, Saddam was gone, and it was almost like, oh, who's in charge? Uh, what, what, what do we put in place? Oh, it's us. So, and then we would have ended up in a very similar situation in Libya. So, in the end, I think the delay didn't cause any um, fundamental failure. Um, in, in many ways, it may have carried the opposite. But yeah, that that transition from one command and control structure, you know, we we just made it work, and that was because. There are some fundamental building blocks to air campaigns that we all knew. We all knew how to do this. We just didn't yet know who was in charge and exactly who was going to be in there. 
But once once you stitch the flags in, then it becomes you know that, then it's just a, a game of flags. Um, the mechanics of how you fight an air campaign, who does what, how you what the rules are, how you deconflict, how you sequence tanking and I star and pass the information, how your network share data, etc., etc., etc. We had that down pat, and that's why we were able to make it work. That's an incredible success story for international cohesion and interoperability between different air forces. I think everybody involved deserves a lot of credit at an individual level for being able to work effectively as a single unit in those conditions and then facilitate the transfer of command to NATO in that way. Now, if I could ask you a little bit more about the early stages of the campaign, how did this collection of air forces overcome Libyan air defences so quickly and so easily? Yeah, just before I come to that, the answer to that, uh, I'll just go back on your first point. I mean, uh, you know, how did we do this and why did we do it so well? I mean, in the end, I had to employ all my human skills, which perhaps are not my strongest suit, but but they were the most important skills. You know, having been a combat pilot all my life and joined at 19 to be a fighter pilot, I never realised that my greatest hour would be actually having to manage French politics versus American politics versus egos, etc. Um, so, yeah, so so that was a lesson for me in, in that leadership, you know, in the traditional military style, is only a very small part of, of the story. And I think the reason I and the team, because it was the team that did all the hard stuff, um, worked so well together is we knew each other. I knew them, they knew me, I knew what they were capable of. Whenever I went into a conversation at the, at the senior level, I never had to double guess what I thought our people could do. And I knew, I knew what their limitations were, I knew what their strengths were, I, and, and hopefully they trusted me to represent that. And so I never actually worried about the UK contribution. I, I always knew that we would do what I thought we could do. And so, and, and you don't grow that, that, that knowledge overnight. That's because I, by that point, what we're talking here, how long had I been in? I mean, I'd been in nearly 30 years by that point. Well, it was 30 years. So, and I, and I knew them. I knew the people. I knew the kit. I knew what we could do. We'd grown up together. Um, you know, I commanded all the different levels. So never underestimate the lessons and the relationships you build as you go along the journey, you know, and you don't just throw them in the bin because, well, I wasn't flying an airplane, therefore everything I've ever done before is irrelevant. No, 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 no. Because I knew, because I understood it, because I was, I was able to be a commander in a very challenging political space because I knew we had the military bit squared. So, so that, that's just, let's just put that on the record because I think it's quite an important you know, you, you may feel, you know, a small pawn in a game early on in your career, but as you move up, you know, all the things you learn, all the things you experience, they all in the end, whether it's by accident or design, but it stitches together. And when, it, when you ever find yourself there, I mean, I know, I don't remember ever as weird and wonderful as the situation was at times. I never sat, you know, in bed at night going, God, how are we going to do this? Or, oh my God, it's all going to go hobbling. I never once felt that. I had supreme confidence in the ability of our people to do the job they, they, they were going to be asked to do. So, so that, that level of trust and confidence that we'd built over 30 years um, is so fundamental and you never underestimate how important that is. Um, so coming to, to CAD, Adam, and, and how did we do it so well? I mean, I, I'm going to be, you know, again, super truthful here. Libya is not the greatest military in the world. Yeah, their kit was old. It was sort of sort of 80s, 90s Soviet um, design, largely. Um, I don't think they really spent a lot of time and effort looking after it or training on it or even using it. So, you know, 
the level of incompetence, shall we say, was high. The impression that armies and air forces can give when they do parades and wear fancy uniforms and, and look good on paper because there's hundreds and thousands of them and they've got this, they've got that, the other. And we do the same thing in the UK, don't we? We're always measured on how many aeroplanes we got, how many ships have we got, how many people have we got. And actually, when it comes down to the real hard fight, it isn't that that's semi-irrelevant. Yes, mass has a quality all of its own, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and if you don't have enough, then it doesn't matter if you've got one really good thing. If it's only got one, then then, then you're in you're in real trouble. But but in in this case, our ability with the equipment that we had, our training. That, for me, is the fundamental, um, meant that this was never a fair fight. It just wasn't. We, we had the skills. We had the electronic warfare capability. We had the intelligence. We had the precision weapons that, quite frankly, within a few days, we had poked out both Libyan eyes and cut his ears off. You know, it, it became totally disheveled and just collapsed. You know, it was so quick that it became so obvious they couldn't talk to each other. They didn't know what we were doing. Um, they weren't able to coordinate anything. So by eroding the layers of command and control, you, you then make individual tactical units who aren't very good anyway, you, you make them useless. And if the morale's low and, and they can't talk to their rear headquarters and all they can see is carnage around them, you know, they're going to turn tail and get in their trucks and disappear. And that's what happens. So, yeah, we, we did this in the classic style. We used long-range strikes to take out his networks, his command and control nodes, and it just rolled in on itself and collapsed. And in Misrata, you know, for the first week, they were driving their tanks into Misrata in the morning, um, you know, shelling anything that could move. And, and the town was in absolute, you know, stasis for an understandable reason. Once we figured out how they were doing it and where we were catching them, we, we were just hitting their tanks on a daily basis. And within about three, four days, the attack stopped. We were that effective. And, and it just goes to show that when air power is employed in a logical and, and precise way, it can have a dramatic effect. So, yeah, it's, uh, the principles do work if you apply them. Um, if your kit and training is better than the other side, you will prevail. Um, but if it's evenly matched, that, that will be a long, hard fight. You know, it could have taken us months to write down the Libyan capability. On paper, it should have done. In practice, it took days. So would it be fair to say that air power played an incredibly decisive role here? And if so, how significant was the RAF's contribution to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, despite the fact that we were caught hopping a little bit on, on the fact that the, the southern NATO flank was suddenly going to become important and we'd perhaps taken our eye off the ball. Um, we stepped up to the plate quickly. We'd already stepped up to the plate for the precursor for, for Odyssey Dawn um, and, and we left those forces in place and, in fact, added a few more subsequently. But, but we, ha and we had the full suite. We had tankers. We had I-Star platforms, we had strikers, we had air defence aircraft. So, and whereas some nations, you know, turned up with, Half a dozen F-16s, great, you know, well done. But but you know, we we are because we still maintain a relatively broad set of capabilities, we're able to turn up largely self-sufficient. In fact, we're able to turn up beyond self-sufficient, where actually we can add to others too. And I think that's always um, seen as a positive thing from the UK. 
we, we can be a bit arrogant sometimes and, you know, suddenly busting into a chaos where you've not had anybody going, where's my seat? Um, can be can look a little rude. Um, but at the end, I think deep down, I think most NATO nations would have a lot of respect for A, what we bring, and and perhaps even more importantly, the calibre of the individuals operating. You know, it's not to denigrate in any way other NATO nations. They're, they're all very good. But, but you know, we, we bring some highly skilled, highly capable individuals who are able to do some incredible things. So, so yeah, I, I, I think we are well thought of and, and long may that continue. And then the great thing is, is when you see all these bust-ups, whether it be Brexit or whatever it might be, uh, you know, or, you know, political slanging with the French or the Germans or, or, or whoever, at the military level, our relationship with the French Air Force has grown and grown. It really has. I, I think, if anything, we've strengthened those relationships by learning about what sometimes happens is not always politically expedient and, and that ultimately we're the ones that have to make it work. So, so that has been a, a real positive. I think one, one thing to say to the listeners, and it's quite important this, we just need to be very wary of, of believing too much of our own hype. Yes, air power was hugely effective in this war, um, and in, to all intents purposes, was really the primary means of attack. Yes, yes, there was some ship embargoes, and yes, some missiles and strikes were done from the sea, but they they they, they were relatively limited. And ultimately, I would argue that that's kind of air power anyway. Um, so let's just talk about the domains rather than the air force. Air power can be highly effective and can be highly decisive, but it's not the be all and end all. You know, it doesn't take ground well it, it sort of can actually it certainly can deny ground to the other side but it doesn't it doesn't sit on the ground it doesn't negotiate with people it doesn't sit around a table and form a government so the the idea that air power can do it all every time is just a complete misnomer and i think as airmen it behoves us to know what our limitations are you know what can't you do the idea you can go and take over a country it all turns back to peace and and you walk away you know good luck with that um, so, yeah, it, it is important for airmen that as, as lethal and precise uh, as air power can be, it, it's not the panacea to everything. And I think the difference is, and it's, it's a really good question, actually, to sort of follow on in, in other conflicts, is how do you cooperate with an unknown partner? So our unknown partner in Libya was the rebel forces. Now, I never picked up the phone to speak to them. Um, I think others might have done. Um, but, it, it, you know, how do you sort of coordinate what is effectively a completely separate land campaign, which is their transition to a new government, new uh, construct, whatever? Is it a good one? Is it just less worse than the other one? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make a moral judgment here, and I'm not for one minute suggesting we left Libya peaceful and happy. You know, that clearly didn't happen. Um, and, and history may well one day judge whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing. But but I think at the time, based on what was about to happen, you know, we I think we absolutely did the right thing. Whether the outcome at the end was the outcome we would have wanted, you know, you, you don't just suddenly turn a country like Libya that's been under a dictator. How many times have we done this? How many times have we taken out countries and dictators and then realised that actually the, the mess that, that then ends ensues is actually quite challenging? So this won't be the first and won't be the last, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it does have limitations. So these, I, I'm trying to remember the name. We gave, we gave it a name. But, but these, you know, when you're cooperating almost, you know, by accident with independent forces on the ground, um, it's kind of a strange situation, but but they were as key a part in resolving this as we were. 
Um, so we shouldn't just say it was air power alone. Air power created the conditions for success. It was for others somehow, you know, to to exploit that and and ultimately turn it into a, a peace, well, peaceful with a small p nation. I think that's a really sobering point to end on. There are a couple of things to bring out of that, namely that air power has inherent limitations, despite the huge advantages that it can bring. And so we should all be aware of what they are and how that constrains the effectiveness or the capabilities of air power. And that training and quality personnel are crucial and essential for air power to ever achieve the results expected of it. This has been a truly wonderful insight into command and control and air power more generally. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome, Aaron. Just to just to sort of cap off exactly what you've pulled out of it there, which I think you're absolutely right. The, the fundamentals and the basics are important. I remember showing um, staff college, actually. I went back to lecture staff college, who, who I think were expecting me to show how the campaign had progressed, exactly how they were taught it at Shrimanum. And, and I had to show them that our initial week of war was written on the back of a cornflake packet because it's all we had. Um, it wasn't all we had, but the guys had used it for whatever reason. I've still got it. Probably shouldn't, but I have got it. You wouldn't know what it is, quite frankly. Um, but... Um, you do sometimes have to make these things up and adapt. And it's because you've learned the basics, because you understand the principles, because you've built the relationships that you make it work. So, yeah, it's, it would be easy to take from what I've said, say, oh, I don't need to learn all this stuff. You throw the book away and I'll just, I'll just make it up when I get there. I didn't just make it up when I got there. I adapted what I knew into what needed to be done in the circumstance. And so that's the subtle difference here. And as you say, training, relationships, you know, and education is is a fundamental part of that. I'm not I'm not going to belittle that in any way, shape, or form. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Harry. Well, that didn't disappoint. Air Marshal Bagwell has given us a tremendous insight into the challenges of commanding air operations, most notably the complicated balance needed between political oversights or appeasing your political masters and the military demands of coalition warfare. If you like this episode, in which we delved into the experiences of a former commander, do check out our earlier episode on the First Space War, where I interviewed Colonel Ronan Ellis, who was responsible for the development and integration of space power into the US Army right before Desert Storm. Next up, we have another highly distinguished guest for you. Colonel John Andreas Olsen is coming on the show. And there is no greater soldier scholar when it comes to air power than Colonel Olsen. Until then, that's it from me. Goodbye.